Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Cozy Christmas Podcast. I'm your host, Art, and we've reached the end of May. Can you believe that in just 25 days, it's Leon Day? That marks six months until Christmas. I hope you have been honoring Christmas in your heart every day throughout the year. I've been finding some new Christmas music to add to my playlist, though I haven't really listened to a lot of Christmas music lately. But I'm thinking here in the next couple of days I might put on some music and uh, listen to some of the the new music that I found. If you're looking for a podcast that talks about um, Christmas music, uh, I'm going to recommend to you the Jingle Jank podcast. I've had Scott on before. Uh, We had an episode back in December and we were looking at some cozy Christmas music. One of his more recent episodes, they were playing uh, uh, Who Sang It Better? And uh, because of that, I found a couple of albums I put on my Christmas list. So you should check them out. And then I also finished reading um, Judith Flanders' book, Christmas, A Biography. Uh, That was one I had recommended not having read it. And having read it, I would still recommend it. It covers the history and development of Christmas from tracing it back to its origins and winter solstice festivals and celebrating and how um, that got brought into Christianity and their celebration of Christ. And then it explores further on just how that has developed and, and different traditions that we have, how they have developed Christmas tree decorating and present wrapping, traditions like that. Um, so I, I really enjoyed it. The The part of my brain that likes to read about history and, and likes to re- see the facts, I really enjoyed that aspect of it. I think perhaps this time of year would be a better time to read it than at Christmas time. I like to save the the cozy Christmas reads for uh, you know for Christmas time. I you know I would recommend that book if you have someone who really is a history nut and loves to read things like that, how different cultural aspects have developed throughout the years. I, I would put that on on their list if that's something they might like. Now, surprising no one, my favorite part of the book was when she was talking about how the Victorians impacted Christmas, since she has written a lot about the history of England, and especially in Victorian England. This was obviously an interest of hers as well. I'm going to share just a couple of little quotes from her book. It says, Now Santa put toys, fruit, and nuts in the stockings of good children, while bad children got coal, or birch switches, which was better than back in Zurich, where bad children received horse manure and rotten vines, although not yet in stockings. In Zurich, Sammy Claus also brought trees for all children, while in Germany the Christmas tree remained, for the moment, something for the prosperous and the urban. The less prosperous became familiar with the custom and institutions, in schools, hospitals, orphanages, and the like, where they had become a feature of charitable giving. Patrons and donors attended candle lighting ceremonies, at which carols were sung and gifts were handed to the poor. I found that so interesting, though, that the naughty kids in Zurich would get horse manure. <laughs> you know, maybe Santa needs to up his game here in, in the United States. Instead of coal and rotten applesauce, you're going to get horse manure if you're not a good. If you're not good. Uh, another quote. She's talking about in 1848 when the Illustrated London News published a an engraving of Victoria and Albert standing next to a tabletop tree at uh, Windsor Castle. She says that the text explained that this was the children's tree, while the Queen, the Prince Consort, the Duchess of Kent, and the Royal Household all had their own, as well as additional trees in the dining room. This single image cemented the Christmas tree in the popular consciousness, so much so that by 1861, the year of Albert's death, it was firmly believed that this German prince had transplanted the custom to England with him when he married. In the USA, the engraving was rendered more democratic when Godey's Ladies' Book, the best-selling monthly magazine in the country, reprinted it in 1850, merely removing Victoria's jewelry and Albert's sash and medals, as well as his mustache, and reducing the number of presents under the tree. The illustration was retitled The Christmas Tree, with no reference to royalty. Now, that is really interesting. There we were in 1850, and Photoshop was already a thing. (laughs) Uh, They doctored the picture up to change the advertisement. 
I thought that was pretty funny. So lots of neat little historical nuggets like that in there. It's a good book. It's worth checking out to help keep your minds on Christmas throughout the year. Okay, and then with that, we will be going to our main segment of the episode today. This is the story of a young lady named Joanne who's coming home from school uh, for the Christmas holidays. Also coming home from school for the Christmas holidays is her next door neighbor slash arch rival slash potential love interest in a few years. Uh, His name is Tommy. It sounds like Tommy and Joanne have kind of a antagonistic relationship where they like to pull pranks on each other. And so Joanne comes home fully expecting that Tommy is going to be playing some sort of prank on her and she wants nothing to do with it. So go ahead and grab that hot chocolate or apple cider, settle down in your favorite chair. And if it's summer where you're at, crank up the air conditioner, pull up a video of the fireplace on your phone or on your computer, make yourself comfortable, and we'll read a story. Joanne's Christmas Mystery by Ellis Parker Butler, first published in 1931. Joanne, home from the Wilmot School for the Christmas holidays, was standing on the car platform as the train stopped, and ignoring the lower steps, she leaped down and cast herself into her mother's arms, giving her a hug that almost cracked her ribs. Oh, joy! Oh, rapture! cried Joanne. Whoop! Hurrah! Home again! Darling, not quite so rough! exclaimed Joanne's mother. Welcome home, dear. But can you never learn to be less tomboyish? Julia Wickham, who had come to spend the holidays with Joanne, was descending from the train more sedately, the porter following her with the luggage. And rag sport! Joanne cried, unhanding her mother and making a dash for the dog that strained at his chain in the rumble seat of the sports car. The dog, now quite a full-grown dog, went almost crazy as Joanne tried to hug him. He barked and jumped and almost choked himself with his collar. Joanne's mother was welcoming Julia Wickham. She turned to Joanne. Let's get the luggage into the car, Joanne, she said. I want to stop and buy wreaths and holly. I left that until you came home. It's going to snow, too, and with the top of the car lowered... Snow! Joanne shouted. The air was warm for Christmas week, but the big flakes were now coming down as if they meant business. Huge, moist flakes. Joanne and Wicky stored the luggage in the rumble seat, crowding the dog somewhat, and Joanne's mother took the wheel and swung the car about. She set the windshield wiper wagging to wipe the sticky snow away so that she could see. Rag sport the dog in which Joanne and the red-headed neighbor boy, Tommy Bassick, each had a half-ownership, tried to climb over the folded top into Joanne's lap, but his chain was too short. Blessed pup, Joanne said. He loves me. Mother, is Tommy Bassick home? Does Ragsport like him at all? And has he been with Tommy much since he arrived home? When did he get back, mother? Tommy got home yesterday, Joanne's mother said. Spenceville Academy let out a day earlier. Tommy was over this morning. The dog seems to like him, but the dog seems to like everybody. He's that kind of dog, Joanne. The car turned up the street from the station. Wicky, said Joanne, who was bubbling over with happiness, this is going to be the best Christmas, and Mother wrote me that my presents are going to be just what I want most. And you here, if only, she added, that pest of a Tommy Bassick leaves me alone and doesn't try any of his smarty tricks. If he does, Joanne, said Wicky, you can get even with him. You always do, you know. I don't want to bother with him, said Joanne. Not this Christmas. Everything is too lovely. Mother, there he is now. Stop the car, Mother. I might as well tell him now that I don't want any of his foolishness. Tommy Bassick had just come out of one of the small stores and was hurrying along as fast as he could walk, unconscious that Joanne was anywhere near. He was carrying a parcel, holding it by the cord, The parcel was rather large, about two feet high and a foot or so square, and it was evidently a box wrapped in paper. It did not seem heavy, for Tommy was carrying it held in front of him with his arm bent. But the careful way he carried it, the box might have contained a vase filled with water. Tommy was grinning as if much pleased with himself. 
Joanne's mother stopped the car opposite him. Tommy, Joanne called. You, Tommy Bassick. The effect on Tommy was instantaneous. As he stopped and saw Joanne, his mouth opened. Then he turned beet red in the face and swung the package behind his back, trying to hide it. He seemed to be both startled and confused at seeing them. Joanne wondered what was the matter. Why, why, hello, Joanne, he stammered. How do? Pile in. We'll take you home. There's room in the rumble seat if you don't mind crowding in. I want to talk to you. Why, er, uh, I gotta stop at a place. I, I gotta stop at a lot of places. Well, I gotta go now, Tommy said, keeping his package at his back and getting redder than ever. He turned away. Tommy Bassick, you wait or I'll get out and make you wait, Joanne said. What have you got in that box? Er, nothing, said Tommy. I don't have to tell you. I know what it is, said Joanne. It's one of your smarty tricks, but you listen to me, Tommy Bassick. I'm sick of your smarty nonsense, and I give you fair warning. Joanne, please, said her mother. Well, mother, said Joanne, I'm not going to have him pestering me and mussing up my Christmas, and he may as well know it. I want to have some peace this Christmas. So you remember that, Tom Bassick. This is my last warning. Go ahead, mother. They left Tommy Bassick standing where he was and looking sheepish, his bundle still hidden behind him. Rags Sport had not understood what all the fuss was about. He had tried to leap into Tommy Bassick's arms just as he had tried to leap into Joanne's. What do you suppose he had in that package? Wiki asked. It was something not very heavy. He held it as if it might break. I don't know, Joanne said. I can't even guess. But I know it was for some sort of smarty trick on me. He had better not use it, that's all. He'll only regret it and be sorry if he does. How right Joanne was in saying that Tommy would be sorry, not even Joanne could guess then. And what was in the package she could not have guessed if she had tried for a week. For Tommy Bassick had planned for two months to give her the most annoying Christmas present possible. He had spent most of his pocket money for it. I think it is something he is going to give you for Christmas, Wiki said. Are you going to think up something to give him? No, I'm not, said Joanne, with spirit. I'm not going to pay the slightest attention to him. I'm not even going to send him a crazy Christmas card. I'm going to have this one Christmas without having to worry about Tommy Bassick. If he does anything too mean, there's plenty of time to get even with him before we have to go back to school after New Year's. I don't even want to hear his name, Wiki. I'm sick of him. Joanne's mother was glad to hear her say this, and she said as much. They stopped and loaded the remaining space of the rumble seat with wreaths and holly sprays, much to the annoyance of Ragsport, who yelped when the sharp-pointed leaves happened to prick him, and so they reached home, the car and everyone and everything in it now covered with snow. The rest of that day and all night the snow continued to fall, but it was soft snow and the weather was warm. By the next morning, which was the day before Christmas, the snow was a foot deep, beautiful to look upon but damp and unpleasant to walk in, and Joanne and Wiki did not go out. From Tommy Bassick there came no sign whatever. But the girls had plenty to do. Joanne and Wiki had their presents to wrap in gay Christmas paper, and Joanne's mother gave them the pleasant task of putting up the wreaths and decorating the rooms with the holly sprays. Rag Sport enjoyed this. He lay on the floor thumping with his tail as he watched them, sometimes with his head on his paws, and sometimes with his head raised as if criticizing their decorative work and approving of it. He was a rather lazy dog, and if they spent too much time over one part of a room, he would recline on his side, doing nothing but thumping his tail now and then. Oh, look at him, the dear dog, Joanne said. I believe he knows it is Christmas time. He must have a present, Wiki. Give me some of that red ribbon. She fastened a gorgeous bow on one side of his collar. Joanne, Wiki asked, do you know what your father and mother are going to give you? I think I do, Joanne said. Mother said in a letter that I was going to have what I most wanted and I know what that was. When I was home for Thanksgiving, I saw the dearest wristwatch in Benderby's window and a dream of a little circle brooch set with little pearls. I told mother about them and said I'd rather have them than anything else in the world. I thought you wanted a lady-sized shotgun in a hunting outfit, 
said Wicky. Oh, that, of course, Joanne agreed. But I knew I wouldn't get those. Father thinks I'm too young, and Mother wouldn't think of giving me anything so tomboyish, so I know I won't get them. It's sure to be the brooch and the watch, Wicky, and I'm just tickled to bits. Well, I do think you're too young to have a shotgun, Wicky said. Why? Joanne demanded. Well, perhaps not too young, Wicky amended, but too, uh, too enthusiastic. I'd hate to have you popping off a gun if I were anywhere near you. I'd be so full of shot most of the time that I'd look like a sieve. You are reckless, Joanne. But of course, said Joanne, I wouldn't go hunting except with father. But you needn't worry. I'll not get a gun. Hand me up that big spray of holly, will you please? We'll have to hurry and get this room done so we can finish wrapping up all our presents this afternoon. The day, with all these things to do and talk about, went quickly enough. After dinner, in the evening, Joanne's father brought the Christmas tree from the garage and set it in the living room to be decorated. There had been a Christmas tree for Joanne ever since the year when she was born, and the pleasant custom was continued. Now another tree was also set in the yard and covered with electric lights in green and white and red, and Joanne's father did that decorating himself, leaving the indoor tree to the girls. The trees were all done by ten o'clock, and the litter swept up. The rule was that everyone went to bed early on Christmas Eve because Joanne always wanted to see her presence at the earliest possible moment the next morning, and her mother never allowed that until Joanne had eaten a proper breakfast. When the tree was decorated, the final act was to carry in the presents. Each member of the family, and each guest, if any were staying at the house, had a separate place for his or her presence. Joanne's mother always had the table by the front window of the living room. Joanne's father always had his on the table at the side of the room. Joanne's presence, since she had been a little girl and too small to reach up onto a table, had been put on the big couch in front of the windows at the back of the living room, and they were still always put there. There was always something big that had to be stood on the floor. One year a bicycle so wrapped in paper that Joanne could not guess what it was, until she had ripped off part of the paper. In another year, a huge bundle that turned out to be a writing desk. But this big present was never brought in until Joanne had gone reluctantly up to bed. Mary's, the cook's presents, were always put on top of the piano, for she was included in the joy of the occasion and always received presents with which she was delighted. This year, Wiki's presents were put at the far end of the couch on which Joanne's were put. There were plenty for Wiki, for her parents had sent them on, and the girls at school had known that she was to spend Christmas with Joanne. As Joanne's father and mother brought down their wrapped presents and distributed them in the allotted places, Joanne, distributing her packages, saw the pile on her end of the couch grow. There were what seemed to be dozens of packages that had come by mail, for all the girls at school sent presents to one another. Wiki's pile was almost bigger than Joanne's, but Joanne was not jealous of this. She was quite sure her father and mother would not put the watch and the brooch, if she was to receive them, on the pile until after Joanne went to bed, because they would be too easy to guess. And the big present, if there was one this year, would be the last to be brought from the garage, or the cellar, or the attic, or wherever it was hidden. When the last present was in place on each pile, Joanne looked at hers with satisfaction. Well, I'm going to get something this year anyway, she said with a laugh that was happy. And look at Wiki's pile, and yours, Mother. Mother, she asked suddenly, was there anything from Tommy Bassick in my pile? Not a thing, Joanne, her mother said. I looked at each package that came by mail or express, and there is nothing from him, and he sent nothing over, I'm sure. Because if there is anything from him, Mother, I want you to take it out of my pile and throw it away and never let me see it, Joanne said. And if anything does come from him, Mother, don't open it. I just know he's up to some sort of trick. She did not say what she had thought Tommy Bassick's trick might be, but it had come into her mind that they taught some chemistry at Spenceville Academy, and about the first thing the boys learned, or taught themselves, was to mix certain chemicals that thus combined gave off a perfectly fierce smell and a frightful lot of it. She did not put it beyond Tommy Bassick to rig up some sort of container that would open when the string was cut, letting out enough terrible odor to drive everybody out of the house. 
The red-headed nuisance might think that was funny. Nobody could ever tell what a boy thought. No, said Joanne's mother. I'm quite sure there was nothing from Tommy. You can see there isn't anything the size of the package he was carrying. If anything comes from him, or if he brings anything, mother, Joanne said earnestly, don't take it. Send it back. Don't let it inside the house. Joanne gave a last look around the room. The lights on the Christmas trees inside the room and outside were glowing in beauty. The holly and the wreaths gave the room a true Merry Christmas look that was increased by the piles of presents in their gay wrappings. And Joanne gave her father and mother their goodnight kisses and put her arm around Wiggy's waist. Come on, Wiggy, to bed we go. Pleasant dreams, everybody. Pleasant dreams, rags sport. The dog, flat on a rug, opened one eye and thumped his tail twice sighed and went to sleep again and joanne and wiki went out of the room and up the stairs after they'd gone joanne's mother sighed now we can get her other presents i've got the watch and the brooch here in my pocket joanne's father said i'll bring up the chair he put the two best presents on the pile on the couch joanne's mother went out and returned with a box that held a dress that joanne would love and joanne's father brought up the spiffy bedroom chair from the cellar all set, he said with a final glance around, and he disconnected the lights of the indoor tree and turned out the lights of the room, and when he had locked the front door, he and Joanne's mother went up to bed. The next morning when Joanne and Wiki came down at seven o'clock, they found the curtains of the door into the living room closed, as they always were on Christmas morning, and they hurried in to breakfast. Where are mother and father, Joanne asked Mary was getting the table ready. How people can sleep on Christmas morning, I don't know. Aren't you excited, Mary? Well, miss, at my age, folks mostly gets over being excited. It seems as if, Mary said, Christmas is Christmas at my age. Joanne's father and mother came down then, and there was a chorus of Merry Christmas, and everybody ate breakfast in a hurry. Then they went to the door of the living room, and Joanne threw open the curtains with a sweep of her vigorous arm. She darted into the room and toward the couch, and then she stopped short. For an instant she stood silent, and then a cry escaped her. Oh! she cried. Oh, no! Her father and mother turned then and saw what Joanne saw. The end of the couch where Joanne's presence had been was empty. Only the one big present the paper-wrapped chair was left. Is it a joke, father? Joanne asked, turning to him. But he was striding toward the couch, and she saw by his face that it was no joke of which he knew anything. This is no joke, Joanne's father declared. He was examining the window at Joanne's end of the couch, a tall window that reached to the floor. This catch has been broken. The window has been pried open, he said. The catch was loose, said Joanne's mother. You remember you said you must tighten the screws in it. But why did they take only Joanne's presents? asked Wiki. Joanne's father, having examined the broken catch of the window, now turned to Joanne. A smile was on his face. He stepped over Ragsport, who was spread out on the floor, thumping it with his tail, unconscious that anything had happened. I think there's not much mystery about this burglary, Joanne, her father said. Nothing gone but your presence and a certain young gentleman at home next door. Tommy Bassick, Joanne ejaculated. Father, if that boy dared to do this, he'll be sorry he ever did. Of course he did it. Joanne started for the door. She did not mean to waste a minute in getting her presence back or in telling Tommy Bassick what she thought of anyone who would do such a thing on Christmas Day. Wait a minute. Where are you going? Her father asked. I'm going over to Tommy Bassick's and I'm going to get my presents back, said Joanne. And when I've finished what I'm going to say to him, he is going to feel smaller than the smallest worm. No, said her father. No, not this time, Joanne. I can put up with any amount of harmless wrangling between you and Tom Bassick, but when it comes to breaking into a house and taking things, even in sport, it is time I had something to say about it. I am going over to the Bassick's myself. Although he spoke without raising his voice, Joanne could see that he was extremely provoked and angry. He had no doubt that Tommy Bassick would give back Joanne's presents instantly, but it angered him to have the usual happy confusion of opening presents after the parade into the room thus spoiled. 
No one, of course, had opened a package. Mary, the cook, looked wistfully at her goodly pile, but did not touch it. Father, said Joanne, I'm going with you. No, please not, said her father. I would rather handle this alone, Joanne. You won't say anything you'll regret, asked Joanne's mother. The Bassicks have always been such good neighbors, and I'm sure they did not know what Tommy did. I'll keep my temper, said Joanne's father. I'll say nothing rude, but I will have it understood that things like this must stop once and for all. With that, he went into the hall and put on his overcoat and hat and went out. Open your packages, Wicky, said Joanne. You don't have to wait just because I have none. I'll get mine back soon enough. No, said Wicky, I'll wait. It wouldn't be any fun to open my presents until you had yours. Your father won't be long. If you don't mind, ma'am, said Mary, I'll open mine. I ought to be getting at my work. Mm, perhaps so, Joanne's mother admitted. Yes, open yours, Mary. And the cook walked to the piano. She had reached up her hand in the air. She looked around. Ragsport was standing by the door. That thumping, ma'am, said Mary. I thought it was the dog, but it's behind the piano. Joanne's mother and Wicky and Joanne stood still and listened. Mary was right. From behind the piano, which stood diagonally across the end of the room, near the window at Joanne's end of the couch, came a thump, thump, and Joanne ran to look behind the piano. Mother, she cried, come here, come quick. For behind the piano, his arms and legs tied and his mouth stopped with a gag, lay Tommy Bassick, thumping on the floor with the back of his head. Joanne's mother, when she saw Tommy Bassick lying behind the piano, with his hands and legs tied and his mouth stopped with a gag, cried out in alarm. The boy was trussed like a turkey that is ready for the oven. To find a boy unexpectedly behind a piano, bound and gagged, on Christmas morning would startle anyone. And to find a boy in that place and state just after a burglary had been discovered was even more shocking. That Joanne's mother did not scream louder was a sign that she had good nerves. Why, it's Tommy, it's Tommy Bassick, gasped Wicky. I'll say it is, said Joanne, grimly, if slangily. Tom Bassick, what are you doing behind that piano? For answer, Tommy could do nothing but roll his eyes. The gag prevented him from making any intelligible sound. Mary, help me move the piano out, Joanne's mother said to the cook. The boy may be suffering. Joanne, help us pull the piano. Together, the two women and the two girls moved the piano out far enough to let Tommy be pulled from behind it. His arms and legs were tied so completely that he could not stand, and they placed him on the end of the couch from which Joanne's presence had vanished during the night. Mary and Joanne's mother first removed the gag. To gag him, a wad of black cloth had been pushed into his mouth, filling it, and to hold it there, a strip of the same black cloth had been tied around his face, knotted at the back of his head. As soon as the cloth was untied from around his head, Tommy spat out the gag. He coughed and retched. Quick, Mary, a pail, cried Joanne's mother. He is going to be sick. But Tommy was not sick. He choked and gasped and coughed again. Water, drink, he begged when he had choked and coughed. And Wicky ran to get a glass of water. She held it to his mouth and he sipped a little and then drank. More? Wicky asked. No, Tommy gasped. That's plenty. Untie my wrists. They hurt. To untie his wrists, they had to turn him over, for his hands were tied behind his back. Mary had hurried to get a knife from the breakfast table to cut the stout cords, but Joanne stopped her when she was about to use it. No, Joanne said. Let me untie the knots. I want to keep this cord. I know what Tommy is going to say. He'll say someone tied him and put him behind the piano. Someone did, said Tommy. A man caught me and tied me and threw me behind the piano. There, you hear that, mother? Joanne said, partly in triumph and partly in scorn. I knew he would say that. He's innocent, of course. He didn't come and play a trick on me. Taking my presence. She stopped in the midst of her angry flow of words. Wicky, she said in quite another tone. Look at this knot. What about it? Wicky asked, bending down to look. Don't you see? Joanne asked. He couldn't have tied this knot himself. The cord is tied around his wrists first, and then around his waist, and then around his ankles. 
and the knot is at the back of his wrists, where his fingers couldn't tie it. Somebody tied him. Joanne's father came in then. Even before he shut the front door, he spoke. Tommy's not there, he said. His bed was not slept in. His father and mother are telephoning the police. Why, what? He gave one glance at the red-headed Tommy and ran to the telephone in the hall, calling Tommy's parents and telling them that the boy was safe. A moment later, he was back in the room and helping to untie Tommy, and a minute later than that, Mr. and Mrs. Bassick came running across through the rapidly melting snow and increased the group around the boy with the sore wrists. In short order, they had the cord entirely untied, and Tommy was seated where Joanne's presence had once been, with his father and mother rubbing his numb arms and legs, while Mary hurried to get him something to eat. It was a most unusual Christmas morning. And now, said Joanne, when Tommy was eating a bowl of cereal and milk, I want to know where my presents are. You know where they are, Tommy Bassick, and you needn't pretend you don't. Speak up, Tommy, said Mr. Bassick. Someone took all Joanne's Christmas presents off this couch, wasn't it? And it looks to me as if some explaining had to be done. How did it happen that you were behind the piano here? Tell us the whole thing, said Joanne's father. Is it some sort of trick you're playing on Joanne? Tommy handed the empty bowl to Mary. He grinned sheepishly and looked up at Joanne, and then, without grinning, at the grown folks. I wasn't doing anything much, he said. I was just bringing Joanne a present. There, exclaimed Joanne. Didn't I say so? Didn't I say he was up to one of his smarty tricks? Just let him tell it, Joanne, said her mother. Go on, Tommy. Well, I had a present I wanted to give Joanne, said Tommy, not looking at anybody. I thought I'd give her a Christmas present. I had a right to do that, didn't I? So I, well, I, I brought it over. What time? Joanne asked. Midnight. I guess it was about midnight, Tommy said. Anyway, I waited until I thought everyone would be in bed and asleep because I knew that if Joanne saw me bringing in present, she would say, No, thank you. I don't want any present from you. And you pried open the window? Asked Tommy's father and not in a pleasant voice. No, I didn't, father, Tommy replied. I wouldn't do that. That would be burglary. I know that much. I was just going to hang it on the knob of the kitchen door when somebody, perhaps the cook, would be sure to find it in the morning. Well, you didn't pry open the window, said his father. Who did? I don't know, said Tommy. It was a man, but I don't know who he was. I came out of our house and I came across the yard and up onto the back porch here, and I had my present carrying it by the cord, and when I got to the top of the steps, I saw this window was open. Open? asked Joanne's father. You mean pushed up from the bottom? Yes, said Tommy. Pushed all the way up, and there was a man standing here at the end of the couch, picking up things from the couch and putting them into a big bag. How could you see that in the dark, Tommy? asked Mr. Bassick. There was light from the Christmas tree out front, said Tommy, and he showed up against that light, dark like a shadow. And, said Joanne's father, well, I was scared, said Tommy. All I thought of was to beat it back home and tell father there was a burglar in Joanne's house stealing things. So I turned to run and somebody grabbed me. I didn't even have a chance to yell. He put an arm around my head with the inside of his elbow against my mouth, and he threw one leg around to keep me from kicking. Shut up if you know what's good for you he said, so I didn't try to yell. And the other man came out. And they gagged you and tied you and put you behind the piano? Yes, said Tommy. The one man held me, and the other man put the cloth in my mouth and tied up my head. He didn't have anything to gag me with, so he ripped out some of the lining of his coat and used that to gag me and tie the gag in with. Then he tied up my arms and legs. I don't know where he got the cord. Maybe he had it in his pocket." Probably to tie up any loot that would not go in the bag, said Mr. Bassick. They meant to take more, but you frightened them away. But go on and tell us what happened next. One of them said, Put him in the house, said Tommy, and they carried me in and put me behind the piano. Then they went out together and closed the window. And took all my Christmas presents, wailed Joanne, even the one you brought, Tommy. I don't know, said Tommy. I guess they took it along with all your other presents, Joanne. They were interrupted by the arrival of two police officers. The policemen had stopped at Mr. Bassick's house in answer to his telephone call, and the maid had sent them over to Joanne's. 
When they had been told about the burglary and the gagging and tying of Tommy, they shook their heads soberly and said it was a mean business, a very mean business. It's going to be mighty hard to catch those guys, one of the officers said. This young fellow didn't see them clearly and they might be anybody. I'll take this cord, it's a sort of clue, and this gag from the lining of one of the fellow's coats, you say. Hello, now what's this? The officer had pulled open the gag and there dropped to the floor a sleeve button with a bit of cloth attached. I know what it is, said Tommy. When the man grabbed me around the head, I bit his coat. I bit that off, I guess. And had it in your mouth the whole time, said the officer. Lucky it didn't get in your throat and choke you, my lad, or we'd have a murder case here. If we can find the coat this and the lining belong to, sir, we'll be getting somewhere. But there's not much hope of that. The coat will be destroyed. Too bad this melting snow wiped out all footprints. Can you tell me what kind of tool they used to pry open the window, Mike? Might have been anything, Joe, said the other officer. Them screws was all but out before. Well, said the first officer, we'll do the best we can, but it's going to take time. The way we catches most of these guys is to wait until the stolen stuff gets pawned in a pawn shop. Oh dear, cried Joanne. Then I won't have any Christmas presents at all today? I'm afraid not, miss. If yours were taken, said the officer, they'd not be pawning them for a week or two. Now, what did they take? Nothing but my presents, my Christmas presents, said Joanne. And what were they, miss? asked Officer Joe. I don't know, said poor Joanne. I hadn't opened them, not one of them. Mother can tell you. Joanne's mother described the wristwatch in the brooch in the presence of lesser value she and Joanne's father had given, and Wiki described the toilet set she had bought for Joanne, blue and silver celluloid backs and handles. But what had been in the packages sent by Joanne's school friends, no one knew. If you please, sir, said Mary, the cook, I was giving her a football she liked in rough games. I see, said the officer, a bit of a tomboy, maybe. It's a hard lot of things to trace, you see, sir. Things anybody might have. We'll be on our way now after having a look around outside. There was one more present, Joanne said. Tommy Bassett gave me something. What did you do with it, Tommy? They took it, I guess, said Tommy. It's not out there. I was going to hang it on the kitchen doorknob, but they grabbed me first. And what was it? asked Officer Joe, taking out his notebook. Well, said Tommy reluctantly, it was a... Uh, a bird. A bird, said the officer. A canary bird, very likely. No, sir, said Tommy, glancing at Joanne and looking away again. It was a parrot. A parrot, exclaimed Joanne. A parrot? Then that was what was in the box you were carrying, Tommy Bassick. One minute, young lady, said the officer, who did not seem to think a parrot was as queer a present as Joanne thought it. Describe the parrot, young man. It was a green and yellow parrot, said Tommy. I bought it at Schling's bird store when I was home for Thanksgiving. He said he would keep it for me till Christmas because I had to save up my allowance to pay for it. He said, and there Tommy stopped. He said what? demanded the officer. Come now, out with it. He said he would teach it to say what I wanted it to say, said Tommy, sheepishly. I see, said the officer. It was a talking parrot, was it? And I dare say you wanted it to learn to give the young lady a Christmas greeting. Is that it? Yes, sir, said Tommy, rubbing the floor with a toe of his shoe. Something like that. And the officer wrote in his notebook, Parrot talks. But Joanne stared at Tommy and Tommy blushed. Joanne knew the sort of Christmas greeting Tommy would want the parrot to utter. It would not be anything complimentary to Joanne. But the officers now departed and Mr. and Mrs. Bassick and Tommy also made ready to go. Joanne felt blue enough with no presents to open. Tommy, she said impulsively, come over after a while. We'll go up on the hill and try to find a place to slide. Come over and bring your sled. Well, all right, Tommy agreed. And when the Bassicks had gone, Joanne tried to be as cheerful as she could. She urged the others to open their presents. You're taking it like a good little sport, Joanne, her father said. And he put his arm around her and kissed her. You have a birthday coming before long and we won't forget it. Tommy returned in less than an hour bringing his sled. He was wearing a new soft leather windbreaker his mother had given him, and he had on his wrist a new watch, a present from his father. Joanne and Wiki were waiting for him in the yard, and Joanne had her sled. We'd better go up the hill back of the house, Joanne said, and on up toward the Benton's woods. 
The snow ought to be better there if it is any good anywhere. And thank you for the present, Tommy, even if I didn't get it. Ah, stop it, Joanne, said Tommy, squirming. I was only playing a joke on you. I think it was a horrid joke, said Wicky, a parrot. You knew Joanne couldn't kill it, and nobody would want it. She'd have to keep it, and it would be always squawking whatever you had it taught. I think it was cruel and heartless, too, Tommy, to keep it shut up in that box all the time. It was not, declared Tommy. I fed it and gave it plenty of water. I had to keep it shut up in the box. Why did you? asked Wicky. For what reason? So it wouldn't be squawking and talking all the time, Tommy said. Parrots don't talk or squawk when they are shut in the dark or their cages are covered, only when it's light. And hanging it out in the cold on the doorknob, the poor little parrot, said Wicky. It wasn't cold, said Tommy. It was warmish. The snow was melting, and it was warm in the box, all wrapped in paper. You needn't say I'd be cruel to a parrot, because I wouldn't be. Well, it was a splendid joke, wasn't it? said Joanne, and it went off so well. You must have laughed and laughed when you were down on the floor behind the piano, knocking your head on the floor. How do old coat linings and sleeve buttons taste, Tommy? They had gone out through the back gate by now, and Tommy stopped short and turned to Joanne. I've had just about enough of your ragging, Joanne, he said. You can stop it or I'll go back home. If you want me to say that what I planned was all wet, I'll say it. And if you think I got the worst of it, you can think so. But I don't want to be ragged all day. Joanne laughed. I won't rag you any more, Tommy, she said. I guess you've had enough. How much did the parrot cost, Tommy? Oh, Joanne, stop it, can't you? Tommy begged. It cost most of my allowance for two months, if you want to know. Now leave me alone, won't you? How are your wrists and your ankles now, Tommy? Do they hurt much? Wicky asked. All right, said Tommy angrily. I'll go home. If you just asked me to come so you could rag me, he turned and was going back toward the house, but Joanne grasped his arm. Oh, don't be such a goop, she said, laughing. I won't say another word, but I guess you didn't worry much over how I'd feel when you planned to send me a talking parrot to shriek at me. Come on, Tommy, I won't say another word, I promise. He turned reluctantly, and they went up the bare hill back of their homes. The snow was rather sloppy, and they sank into it to their ankles as they climbed the hill. But under the wetter snow, the old snow was firmer, having frozen before the last snowfall. What did you think of the policemen? Joanne asked to change the subject. I don't know, Tommy answered. I guess they were all right. They didn't seem to get very excited. I guess they have a lot of burglaries, and they probably go at them all the same way. They were not detectives, just policemen. I don't suppose they have detectives in a town this size. I bet a real detective wouldn't wait around for weeks until a burglar got ready to pawn stuff. A real detective would look at that button I had in my mouth and say, Ha! A scratch on this button! Mike, hand me my magnifying glass! Yes, just as I thought. The scratch was made by a sharp piece of soft white marble. There's a speck of marble dust in it. The burglar works in a monument works. Yes, here's marble dust in the interstitches of the coat lining he used as a gag and a bandage. What does that mean to you, Mike? Then the other detective would say, Left-handed Louis Joe? He'd been doing odd jobs in Fowler's marble work since he got out of Atlanta prison. That's our man, Mike. Folks, will have Joanne's presents back here in 30 minutes. And they would have them back. That's how real detectives would go at it. That would be wonderful, Joanne said, thrilled by Tommy's dramatic description. It wouldn't be anything for real detectives, scoffed Tommy. I'll tell you what your father ought to do, Joanne. He ought to send somewhere for a real detective to Chicago or New York or somewhere. Wouldn't it cost a lot? Joanne asked. Wouldn't it cost more than all my presents cost? Well, of course, if you're going to care what it costs, you couldn't get a real detective, Tommy said. But I don't believe those cops will ever get your present back. You can't get something for nothing, you know. They had now reached the top of the hill where they had to turn to the left to climb the larger hill to Benton's Woods, and below them, to the right, lay Shanty Hollow, the collection of miserable dwellings where lived the most shiftless families of the town. The snow looks better up there, said Joanne, nodding toward Benton's Woods, and they had started up the hill when, from Shanty Hollow, a harsh voice suddenly rent the air. Rock! 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 It screamed. 
Hello, hello, pretty Polly, pretty Polly. <laughs> Joanne thinks she's smart. Rock, rock, rock. The parrot ended with a final rock. They've covered him up or something, said Tommy, when the silence had continued for a minute. He talks all the time during the day when he isn't covered up. But Joanne was no longer there. She had picked up her sled and with a run for a start had slammed it down with herself on top of it, rushing down the hill toward the main part of the town. At the bottom of the hill, she jumped from her sled and, dragging it after her, ran to the police station as fast as she could run. She burst in upon the policemen there. She was all out of breath. My presence, she gasped. My parrot, I know where they are. Oh, please come quick. The four policemen in the station were doing the best they could, it may be supposed, to make some sort of holiday out of a day when they had to be on duty. They were playing a game of cards, seated on four chairs and using another for a table, and when Joanne burst in upon them so excitedly, they turned to look at her. It's the Christmas burglary girl, one of them said. What is it, sis? What's the matter now? My presence, Joanne repeated. I know where they are. I heard my parrot talking. Please come, quick, before they wring its neck. That was all the pleading those policemen needed. You said it, daughter, the youngest of the officers exclaimed, and he half escorted, half pushed Joanne out of the door. He thrust her into the automobile that stood there. Two more of the officers piled into the car, and in three minutes the car had skidded to a stop before a row of three shanties. One officer took each shanty, pushing in the doors without knocking, while Tommy and Wicky came running from the hill. In a minute it was over. Joanne could never remember anything except the two officers dashing from the end shanties into the middle one, and then two of them coming out with two handcuffed men, while the third came out carrying the parrot in one hand and an armful of Christmas packages in the other. Rock! 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 Pretty birdie! Rock! 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 screamed the parrot. Joanne thinks she's smart. Joanne thinks she's smart. You silly bird, laughed Joanne. Maybe I'm not smart, but I'm happy. And she was. Not one present had been lost. Well, what did you think of that story? Did it end the way you thought it would? It felt like to me it was part of a series of stories. So I, I looked, I checked into it and Butler wrote a series of stories about Joanne and her ongoing adventures with the boy who lives next door. And they were published in the magazine The American Girl, which was a magazine for uh, the Girl Scouts. And that's the only story I've read, and I'm kind of wanting to read some more because that was a lot of fun. It looks like one of the other stories, at least, may not, uh, as we say, have aged well understanding it's a product of the time and all that, but you know, I don't necessarily want to promote those uh, harmful stereotypes. So if that's something that really concerns you, you know, just be aware of that going into reading those. I, I love the way he plays with our expectations through all this. You think that maybe Tommy did in fact set up this elaborate prank, but then I really thought that maybe Joanne had been the one to set this whole thing up and I'm still not entirely convinced, except that the crooks were, in fact, arrested by the end of the uh, of the chapter, by the end of the story. But still, I have my, I, I wonder, because as, as the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I had to laugh, too, that uh, she was, you know, described as a tomboy, and everyone's telling her to stop being so tomboyish, but you know, she knew who she was and she was happy to, to be who she was and, and uh, didn't care what people thought. So that's pretty cool. Anyway, you can find these books, on these stories online. Um, a lot of the Joanne stories are collected in a book called Joanne Tomboy by Ellis Parker Butler. So that's something that might interest you. But okay, that will uh, do it for today. A couple of things to announce about what's coming up. I'm going to have an episode in June in, here in two weeks and then uh, we'll have a special Leon Day episode with a special guest Anthony Caruso from Tis the Podcast. I am so excited to have him on and he's going to come on the show and talk about his book that he wrote and that uh, us Christmas podcasters are currently reading um, chapters from to help uh, promote his story. He's hoping that he'll get it published and may or maybe turn into a movie 
And so we're helping them out there by getting the word out. And it's a fun story. So I'll tell you all about it when he's on the show. It's reminded me of like an old time radio format where every week you get a new episode of a story. So that's coming up in, in June. And then July, we're going to be celebrating Christmas in July. And I have some very special guests planned for that month and some surprises along the way. We're going to have a contest and more about the contest will be in the next episode. All right. And so with that, uh, we will go ahead and sign off for today. Um, As always, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the episodes, for following, for subscribing, for leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, sharing on your social medias, all that you do to drive folks uh, to make them aware of this podcast. This is a a labor of love for me, and it means the world that, uh, that you folks are coming by and listening and sharing and leaving such encouraging comments to me. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. And if you haven't yet left a review, please do so. Leave a review and let me know. I will uh, send you a Christmas card and a podcast sticker. If you've done that already and want another one, you can help support the show financially by going to uh, ko-fi.com, ko-fi.com backslash cozy Christmas. And for just $3, you can help support our show. Oh yeah. And then of course, always send me your story, your Christmas story, your traditions, your favorite memories. And uh, if I feature it on the show, I'll try and get you a, a card and a sticker as well. So three ways you can get a card and sticker from me and let folks know about the greatest Christmas podcast based in Southwest Iowa in the greater Walnut area. I hope you guys will uh, have had a happy May I know a lot of us were very busy, and so I hope May has gone well for you. So, as always, be kind to each other and do good. And remember that there is nothing in the world more irresistibly contagious than laughter and good humor. Have a very Merry Christmas.